Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is James Grissom, whose book is titled Follies of God, Tennessee Williams, and the Women of the Fog. This is the first book by James Grissom. He's a TV writer written for Law and Order, a season of the soap opera One Life to Live, several other forays into television. Now, 1982, you were 20 years old, and you sent a letter to Tennessee Williams. He responded. You went down there. You spent five consecutive days together in New Orleans, and then you went back to Baton Rouge. But he kept calling. It's funny, uh, there's a piece in the book where I talk about my father had an, a habit that enraged us and my family. He wouldn't write down messages. So I would come home from work and he would say, oh, you got a message. And I'd say, from whom? And he'd say, I don't remember, name some names. And I'm like, I, it never occurred to me to say Tennessee Williams. But finally, Tennessee caught me on the phone. He really wanted me to come to New York and start this assignment. And the assignment that he gave to me in New Orleans in 1982, was to go to those people who mattered to him, meant a great deal to him, and got him up every day in the morning to face the pale judgment, which is the blank page. And he said, by focusing on those people, I'm not bitter about the fact that I'm being told I no longer matter. And I was 20, and I didn't know how to do it. I thought I could not see myself getting to New York, staying in his place at the Manhattan Plaza, or at the Hotel Elysee, or the Hotel Easy Lay, as he called it, and knocking on Julie Harris's door, or Maureen Stapleton's door. I I thought it was insane. I was already friends with Marion Seldes, who was a mentor to me, and she said, I want to tell you you have to do it, but I also don't know how you could do this. And then he died five months later. And then he died. So then it became a guilt. It was a guilt trip. I was like, I let him down. How do I do this? And then I finally thought I knew how to do it or had what it took to do it and moved to New York and started knocking on the doors. So then 1982, you went down there and for five days, he talked to you and you took copious notes. Yes. Yes. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be five days. I thought it was going to be a lunch. So there I am. I meet him in uh, Jackson Square. We go to the Court of Two Sisters restaurant. We start talking. Dusk approaches. He takes me to St. Louis Cathedral. We pray. He buys me a rosary. And I'm walking out of the cathedral thinking this is goodbye. And instead, he said, I'll meet you in the morning. Okay. So I drove back to Baton Rouge and then went back to New Orleans the next day. How long? It's about 80 miles. Mm-hmm. So you, you can do it in about an hour. And... That went on. The last two days were continual. There was no sleep. I didn't leave to drive to Baton Rouge. I had youth. He had cocaine. We stayed awake. There was an urgency in him. And I thought, there I was, 20 years old, a nobody, 
And here he was, Tennessee Williams. He was selling the idea. You know, normally you would think it'd be the, the exact opposite. I'd be 20 going, please read my work. Please help me. You know, I'll do anything. And instead it was, let me tell you how this would be. And it would be wonderful for you and material. I, I could bring no judgments because I didn't know any, anything. Why you? I mean... Well, I wasn't fanish, which he liked. We also were very, both very good at imitations. And we would sit at tables and in hotel rooms. And he also was amazed by the fact that I was 20 years old and knew everyone he mentioned, which impresses me now that I'm old. And I can mention the most obscure character actress. And he goes, oh, I love her. And, and you, you're taken aback. So he was comfortable with me because I knew these people, admired them, could talk about them. I knew his work. And I was interested in talking to him about his work, not what was Elizabeth Taylor really like. I mean, that eventually came out, but it wasn't what I opened with. And I wasn't asking him for money or can I get the name of an agent? I was asking him to tell me what it was all about. And no one was doing that. But you took copious notes. You did not have a tape recorder no. deliberately. Well, not deliberately. Did didn't it. have a tape recorder. I mean, I didn't go there as a reporter. I went there as a rube and a student, and I had my blue examination booklets from college, you know, in which you took, you know, your examinations. And But I have to say, apropos of tape recorders, I now have to use them because I'm 53 and I don't have that that memory that I used to have. And I also can't take notes as quickly. And I always had an invented shorthand. I never learned, you know, Greg shorthand. But I don't like tape recorders. It's better now with the digital tape recorders. But when I came to New York in 89, I had an old-fashioned tape recorder with cassette tapes. And we always would stare at the tape recorder. And I'd be worried about it. And I can't tell you how many times I would have to... I remember Mildred Natwick interviewing her and... All of a sudden, from the corner of my eye, I saw the tape unspooling out of the machine. So everything was lost. So I had to go back. So I just thought, you know what? Here's how you get great quotes. And here's how there's great authenticity and veracity. You take copious notes, you run home, you type everything up, and you send it to them. That's what I did. Now, I told that to Carl Bernstein once, and he, his head exploded. And, and I had to explain to him, I'm not a political reporter. I would never give that courtesy to Hillary Clinton. Like, well, no, I didn't mean it when I said we should bomb Iran. You know, no, you went on, no, you said that, it stays. These were people telling me very, very personal things. And I have to say, no one ever cut anything. Instead, whether it was Marlon Brando or Geraldine Page or Catherine Hepburn, they would read it and go, I got your notes, but I want to add to this. So then they got better. So a question I get a lot of times on my blog and my Facebook page is, how do you get such good quotes? That's how. There's a trust that builds up. James Grissom, let's go back a little bit. You said you knew Marion Seldes, the actress. How did you meet her and how did she become your mentor? Because without her, this book never happened. It yeah. would never have happened without her. I mean, she's the engine and the angel of that book. When I was in high school in Baton Rouge, I was an actor, and I, I thought I was going to be an actor. Uh, there was a drama club, and every Thanksgiving, the drama club came to New York for a week and saw about seven or eight shows. In November of 1978, November 20th of 1978, we saw Death Trap, the Ira Levin mystery that was at the Music Box Theater. Marion was in it, and in the playbill, 
it said that Marion had written her autobiography called The Bright Lights. I ran to Marlboro Books at the intermission of Death Trap, bought the book, and we all waited backstage, as we did everywhere, to get autographs and talk to the actors. Marion signed my book, and I told her I'd like to be an actor, and for reasons I will never know, it was just the kindness of that woman. She said, let's talk. When are you free? And I said, well, I'm seeing Annie tomorrow night, and I've already seen it. And she said, well, you know, I die in the first act. So I said, well, then fine. I'll leave Annie at intermission. I'll come to Death Trap, and we'll talk. And I did. And she helped me. I had already missed, I forget what they're called. They're called league auditions, where you audition for certain schools. Oh, yeah. I had missed the deadline. She finagled things with Margot Harley and got me in to an audition for Juilliard. But she said, let's be friends, which I'll never forget. And read everything I wrote. It, it soon became clear that I didn't want to be an actor enough. She said, but you're a brilliant writer. Why? And you have a, a gift such as it is, for walking up to people and getting from them exactly what you need. You did it with me. So write to the writer or writers who mean the most to you. And that's how I wrote the letter to Tennessee Williams. In my ignorance, I wrote it care of Audrey Wood, whom he'd fired, but he was still within the same agency and they were dutiful and got it to, I guess, Bill Barnes at that time. And Tennessee answered it six months later, I think, by calling my parents home in Baton Rouge. When we were in New Orleans, and he was saying, here are the people I want you to reach out to, I was taking the notes down on a menu. And when he said Marion Seldes, I said, oh, I know her. And he was shocked, like, how do you know her? You're this 20-year-old rube. I mean, and I told him that story. And that night from his hotel room, he called Marion in New York and did a reference check on me. And then, of course, she called me and said, what on earth is going on? So she really made it all possible. And then when I got to New York, I said, I don't know how to get in touch with John Gilgood or Irene Worth or Alec Guinness. She arranged all those. So, yeah, she was she was the soul of my life. James Grissom, before we move on to the content of the book, I want to fast forward several years because, you know, I look at the people that you spoke with, Seldes, Joe Van Fleet, uh, Marlon Brando, Ilya Kazan, Kim Stanley, Kate Hepburn, Kim Hunter, Eva Legallion, Maureen Stapleton. I'm leaving out the live ones here. All of these people have since passed away. So we're talking about a uh, over about 30 years between the time that you met Tennessee Williams and began this tour of actresses, directors, and actors. Mm -hmm. These notes for this book as it grew, did you know it was going to be a book? What were you thinking? I wanted it to be a book. I hoped it would be a book. I didn't know how to make it into a book. I actually started the journey about seven years after Tennessee died. I moved here on St. Patrick's Day of 89 and had lunch with Marion Seldes, and she pulled out all the notes, the letters I'd been sending her, and said, this is a book. How many of those little blue books did you have? I don't even remember. I think four or five, and then we moved to legal pads. I remember being in Antoine's, and I had no more paper, and they gave me this wonderful linen paper that they used to print their menus. So the notes for the book are a hodgepodge of papers, notebook paper, typing paper, backs of menus, shirt boards, whatever. And you I typed it up afterward. Yeah. And then I would go and type it up. I'm IBM Selectric, so, which I still have the typewriter. I don't think it works. 
and then later went into computer form. It, it has gone through all sorts of phases. What also would happen if, when I started writing this book, when I tell this to certain audiences, their eyes glaze over, like I'm from the Pleistocene era, there was no internet. I didn't have a computer. I had an IBM Selectric. I would have to type letters, post them. And then if it was the wrong address for, say, Catherine Hepburn or whatever, it was returned to me. It, it was very arduous and I had to make a living. And, and so I would work and I'd, I'd get frustrated and I'd give up. Marion was very helpful in that way because she would cut through all of that and say, I'm just going to call them. And then I, my phone would ring and it would be Carrie Nye or Catherine Hepburn or someone like that. Uh, Barbara Baxley was helpful in getting me to Jovan Fleet, who didn't talk to anybody and was very reclusive and angry. It was really because I didn't know how to write the book. By not knowing how to write the book, I meant, all right, I have these great interviews. What do I do with them? And what I did, and my editor, Victoria Wilson, here at Knopp, was really great because she said, you have to write it as Tennessee presented it to you, which was odd. But I think it's a gift that people can read this book and get some kind of feeling of what it must be like to walk around the French Quarter with Tennessee and all these disjointed thoughts, which he compared to leaves in the wind. And I kept trying to impose a narrative order on it. And it was cleaned up but it was antiseptic. It didn't sound legitimate because anyone who knew Tennessee, even from talk show appearances, would say, this is too orderly and too neat. And I would try to present the women like types of women, like the soul searchers, you know, and that would be like Julie Harris, Lois Smith, Mildred Natwick. And I go, no, this is not how Tennessee told it to me. There was some kind of emotional sense to how Tennessee told me these stories and why these women mattered to him. I have to follow what he gave me. And then it started to fall into place. You know, it was too long. It was almost a thousand pages. And I, and I love it. If you ever get a chance to meet Victoria Wilson, you should. She is wonderfully laconic and terse. And she called me when I turned in the manuscript, which is 900 and something pages. And she said, hi, I want to tell you, this book borders on greatness. Thank you. You're going to have to cut it. I don't publish Russian novels. So, I'd, I'd love to see the 900-page <laughs> version. But well, I mean, well, a lot, of, a lot of what I had to cut from the book, what I call the detritus of the fog, is on my blog. She was right. She said, focus it on those women. And while there are great quotes from Kazan and Arthur Penn and all these other people about life and the theater and Marilyn Monroe and what matters and why the theater is no good anymore, it, it fogs up the book, for lack of a better word. You know, I started jotting down questions that I had of material that wasn't in the book. Yeah. Because, for instance, I noticed that while there's a lot of emphasis on a number of these actresses and their relationship to Williams and his work and acting and life. Most of us know Tennessee Williams, sadly, I think, mm -hmm. through the films. Yeah. And there's very little mentioned about the films. There's a passing reference to Vivian Lee, for instance, but nothing about what he thought of her as Blanche. Mm -hmm. uh, no mention at all of Liz Taylor in Suddenly Last Summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, no mention of Baby Doll, Rose Tattoo, Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, Period of Adjustment, Night of the Iguana, Boom. I have some good quotes, and I introduced that film at Film Forum, and I spoke about that. The reason he didn't talk much about the films, he always felt divorced from the films. Not Streetcar so much, and he loved Baby Doll, but those were films that he was 
very actively involved. Most of the time they wrote him a check and someone else adapted his play. And he just kind of closed his eyes, held his nose and hoped for the best. He did make some comments about the films and I interviewed people like Elizabeth Taylor and we talked about those films. And I've just recently interviewed Carol Baker. I will tell you there are planes circling and there is probably going to be another book. And it's mostly an actor's notebook. And it's it's Tennessee describing to me as the young student I was, what his, where his plays came from, what they turned into, meaning the Broadway productions as well as the films, and then notes from all the actors who played the parts. And that's probably going to be more of an academic book and just like a, 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 a notebook or a handbook for actors and directors, I think it'd be helpful. But it didn't really fit in this film, in this book. Well, then let me ask you a little bit uh, mm-hmm. preview on this. What did he say about Lee's performance as Blanche Dubois? The first thing that always comes to mind, and Kazan said this as well, and I'll never know from whom it, it emanated initially. Did Kazan say it first or did Tennessee? I mean, or Yeah. Both of the actresses, Jessica Tandy, who originated the part, and Vivian Lee, who played it in London and in the film, had great strengths as Blanche and great weaknesses. With Jessica, Tennessee said it was a real battle, not always successful, to believe that she seduced men to get mortgage money or drapes for Belle Reeve or whatever. But you could believe she had been a schoolteacher and that she had taught the poems of Browning, Edgar Allan Poe, whomever, to students. Jessica Tandy also had a breakdown that was much more subtle, just like a bird falling off a limb suddenly. With Vivian Lee, you could believe that she seduced men. You could believe that she knew her way around a man. You could not quite ever see her in a public schoolroom in Mississippi. And her breakdown, of course, was extreme. It was not a bird falling off a limb. It was a tornado coming through a town. And he loved them both. And he became very close to both of them. Lee is not in the book much because, of course, she died in 1967. I never spoke to her. But everyone with whom she worked spoke to me. And that will be in in the next book. Class Menagerie, the original movie, he dismisses for good reason. He hates it. Did he make any mention of the Kate Hepburn Glass Menagerie? Well, yes and no. He made one glancing reference to it, which will tell you what he thought of the television production of Glass Menagerie that Anthony Harvey directed in 1973. Uh, I said, did you see Catherine Hepburn do Amanda? And he says, I did. And because I love her so much, I'm not going to talk about it. So there. <laughs> and what about Liz Taylor in um, Suddenly Last Summer? He loved, well, he loved Elizabeth Taylor. I loved Elizabeth Taylor. I don't trust anyone who doesn't love, who, who met Elizabeth Taylor and doesn't love her. But Elizabeth Taylor could not stay on the subject. I mean, she did when I would ask her about A Place in the Sun or Suddenly Last Summer or Giant or whatever. She was great. But when I'd say, okay, now getting back to that night you were with Tennessee and he asked you this, and then she'd go off on a tangent and we'd go out and buy tab or have to walk the dog. He loved Elizabeth Taylor. And Mike Nichols and I talked about this once. Elizabeth Taylor was a machine, a great pro, but she was thrust in front of cameras as a child. So to direct her, you had to literally say things like Elizabeth. Um, I need you to think for two seconds, count to three, look up, make a face of disgust, and then say your line. 
but say it like you're reading a telegram to someone. And she would do it. But left to her own devices, she would just say, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, and of course, she worked with some of the great directors who, who worked closely with you, Mankiewicz, George Stevens, Mike Nichols, and even Richard Brooks, I think, got a good performance out of her uh, as Maggie the Cat. I mean, look, she was blessed with such beauty. The light knew her, could find her, and loved her. Once you positioned a camera on her, you were more than halfway there. And then if you, Paul Newman told me once, he said, she was very much like a silent film star, like my chapter on Lillian Gish. John Gilgood said that to direct Lillian Gish, you just gave her an adjective or a, a word like childhood death. And she would take it, physicalize it, and then it was beautiful. But you had to, it was, I think he compared it to like a, a projector that just had nothing in it. And then you slide, you put a slide in it, and then you have an image. You had to insert the slide in Lillian. And I think that was true of, of Elizabeth Taylor as well. Like, okay, Elizabeth, your youngest child has just died. Now, action. You know, it was like very child actor method. That's very different than from the way you describe most of the actresses in uh, Follies of God who became, I mean, um, Lee Grant said to me, she at one point she said, which I would love if it was original, but I'm sure she, she said it many times, that Shirley MacLaine talked about living many lives over yeah. many years, and Lee Grant said, I did the same thing, only it was in one life, where they become the characters, yeah. where they get deep, dig deep, and that's, I don't want to use the method because it might be more Meisner than method, but mm -hmm. whatever it is, that's what these these actresses like Frances Sternhagen, that's what Brando did, uh, Rosemary Harris, the great Lois Smith, yeah. All of these people did that, and then there were these automatons who mm -hmm. I guess just simply say, okay, what do you want? Yeah. Well, and then then there are the people like Geraldine Page who had access to everything. Actor Studio, Uta Hagen. I mean, she read voraciously. I went to a function that was held in Geraldine Page's townhouse. Her son, Tony Torn, has a a salon, and they showed Summer and Smoke and asked me to talk about Geraldine Page. And he said, he was quoting an actress named Charlotte Booker who took classes with Geraldine Page, and she was saying to her students, I forget what the exact quote is, but something to the effect of, find your method, use it, and then shh. And she did that, meaning don't talk about it. I think when I spoke to Julian Page, she said, I took from everybody and now I have my own version of it. It's my own recipe. It's a little bit of Meisner, a little bit of Hagen, a little bit of Strasberg, a little bit of Stanislavski. And then some of it is just, let's pretend, you know, I'm back to childhood, you know, or Goodman School of Theater from Chicago. Whatever works, works. And that's your method at the time. So I think a lot of people are that way. I would find it difficult and I know that I've talked to people, if someone is so slavishly method, they're almost impossible to work with because some scenes and some situations don't respond to the exercise you have. The problem is the exercise you have, not the play. But they're going to stay stuck on it. And I remember Kazan, an actress in the original stage production of Sweet Bird of Youth, kept trying to make the scene work, make the scene work. And he said it, and it was like a 300-pound woman putting on a size 2 dress. It's never going to happen. So he just said, just say the effing line. 
and use the anger you have that you're not able to do it right. And then it was a brilliant scene. So, I mean, you can get caught up on and, and you know, rule number one, don't get caught up in whatever method you have. Use whatever works. I think that's, I should have said that at the beginning. I went on for a while. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. But Well, one thing uh, about Tennessee Williams that makes the book Follies of God so fun to read is he had a way with words. Tallulah Bankhead, she could upstage the crucifixion. Warren Beatty, I'm rephrasing here, could arouse a credenza, but not Carol Haney. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah, he could. Uh, I think it. Didn't he say could make a credenza lubricate? Yes. So, yeah. Well, also, when he was driving through the French Quarter, he said, uh, a building painted the color of a just-licked glands. He was great wordsmith. There's so many things he said that, that are not in the book. One of my favorite stories, I can always make Lee Grant, Zoe Caldwell, crack up when I tell them this. To walk with Tennessee Williams in the French Quarter of New Orleans would be like walking with the Pope in Vatican City. It's that defect. And people who are tourists can't believe, my God, we came to New Orleans and look who's here, Tennessee Williams. And he was so sweet with everybody, talked with people, posed for photographs, answered really silly questions. And we were walking in the quarter and a young man walked up and he said, oh, Mr. Williams, I, I'm so glad. This is a blessing. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm a graduate student at Tulane studying philosophy. He goes, oh, you poor thing. He says, I'm asking people of a certain age. Tennessee turned to me and said, that means old. Uh, people of a certain age to tell me at this point in their lives, after education and experience, what are the three things they still fail to understand? Tennessee thought for a moment and said, well, deliberate cruelty, algebra, and Celeste home." And of course, you know, the, the young man had no idea about what he was talking about. And then later he like, he said, this led to a discussion of people whose careers he could not understand. Like they have no charm. They have no talent. They're just horrible people. Like what, what cosmic joke. But Tennessee was always about finding the lesson, the sermon, the, the silver lining, the fortune cookie message. And he said, I think it's so that we don't take anything too seriously. So if I get a bad review in the New York Times, he said, well, they liked Celeste Home and Bloomer Girl. So it balances out. You know, they don't get everything right. This is not the end of the world. There's no finality to anything. And but he would tell me about other people. But I just love that, that he was like some of his lines had a Neil Simon quality to them in the sense that he could just riff off these funny comic lines. Well, the thing I love about what you just said is that, you know, there are interviewers who are more successful than me and my response is tennessee williams you know yeah. whatever and i'm sure you've had experiences similar to that where all you can say is well so and so liked such and such yeah well i don't know if you've ever had this situation but most of the women i interview i think the exception was geraldine page who didn't care who else i'd interviewed but most other actresses go well who else is in this book you know, they want to see what company they might be keeping. And they want to know, well, what did he say about them? So that takes up the first hour of, <laughs> of the time that you have with them. I was asked this once, were you ever afraid being in a room with these people? I mean, some, these are big people or on the phone with Marlon Brando. Big per and I went, I think for whatever reason, it might even be vast stupidity. I'm not scared of anybody. I, I mean, I'm nervous getting there. On the way to Catherine Hepburn's Turtle Bay apartment, 
I'm a mess. But once she opened that door and she was right there, every sweat gland in my body had an air conditioner installed in it. I was fine. And I went, hello, Miss Hepburn, let's begin. And I just kind of took over. We were dancing and I was leading. And I think you have to do that. And you also have to yell at people sometimes. And I will tell you, I have yelled at Lauren Bacall and Faye Dunaway when they would get really difficult. And I would say, well, why the hell am I here? You asked me here. You sought me out and got me. And then they go, oh, okay, okay it's okay, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> I wish I, I wish I had. I, 35 years I've interviewed people from Gore Vidal, John Updike, all of these yeah. people. Only one person in all of those years ever did that to me, scared the crap out of me, and made put me at a loss. And that was Stephen Sondheim, next door oh, to Catherine Hepburn. That's right. And she, and she did not like him as a neighbor. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've only met Stephen Sondheim at parties, and it's been fine. I don't know what it would be like to interview him, though. Well, I have no think. reason to do so. And Lauren Bacall was lovely to me socially. She was a horror in an interview situation. She didn't trust people. And I remember I was at a party once with my beloved Marion Seldes, and she's like, well, darling, when did you ever come back? I'm like, you were horrible. Why, why would I come back? You were such a bitch. And she went, and she looked really shocked, and she went, well, that was that situation. Yes, but it's me. I don't understand that compartmentalization. You're air kissing me and mouth kissing me here and getting champagne for me. I loved it. I, I made Lauren Bacall my, my booze bitch at a party. I didn't have the drink, honey. And she went and got it. But what, when I get in your apartment in the Dakota, suddenly it's like, what do you want? Like, she must have had a fascinating sex life. That's all I can think of because her, her role playing skills were phenomenal. Getting back to Tennessee Williams, did he ever talk? about what it felt like having gone from being the playwright of the day to being, for certain plays, part of the canon in high school? He never did because he didn't see that, which to me is one of the saddest things. I would sit there and go, but everyone reads you. Everyone loves your work. You're quoted. And all, all he knew was, I'm now being done in church basements. And also that... Critics like Robert Brustein and John Simon were consigning him to the waste bin, were saying perhaps he was always overrated. Mary McCarthy always thought he was overrated. You know, he used a term you never hear anymore. He said, I'm a has-been. I'm washed up. I'm being told I don't matter. And I have to believe that I once mattered. And I have to believe that I can again. But he also then would say, but then who am I kidding? I destroyed myself with the alcohol, with the drugs. He also posited a theory, which at 20, I just brushed off and went, what do you know? Now at 53, I'm like, he could be right. He said, I think we're limited in what we can do. And there comes a time when it's like, I can't do this anymore. Some people may only have one or two novels in them. Someone may only have one play in them. Some actors may only have a good five-year career. And then it's like guest spots on TV shows. That is just the way it might be. And he was much more daring than most people I've interviewed at examining that. And like, this just may be in the cards. On the other hand, lately, in the past year or two, there's been a reappraisal, a huge reappraisal of the later works, the works that we still don't know. You know, the casual person does not know these plays. Well, yeah. If you compare slapstick tragedy, the two-character play, View Carre, to Streetcar, Count Tin Roof, you can see there's a diminution. But if you compare those later plays of Tennessee Williams to almost anything that is being produced and winning awards on Broadway, it is far superior. And that is because 
at his worst, Tennessee Williams was a better writer than almost anybody writing for the theater today. So you see the sparks of creation. You see, even if it's not successfully completed, you see the idea, the genesis, what he was aiming for. In Tennessee, would get very angry. He'd say, I went to see the latest Yale Drama School Darling off Broadway or on Broadway. And he said, there's nothing at stake. It's typing. It's an educated person having educated people talk. But what's at stake? And th that was what he'd always say, don't ever even approach the page, the, the pale judgment, without there being something huge at stake. Mama's dying. I brought you all here. What are we going to do? You know, when he would go give classes, he would like throw things like that out and say, now run with that. When I met with Tennessee, there was not a great deal of AIDS awareness. It was pretty early. It was just yeah. grid or gay cancer or whatever. So he'd say, I'd go to a class and say, your uncle has this gay cancer thing. Does anyone know what it's about? He goes, now that'd be the opening line of a play. I'd going to go, what's next? And then he goes to see plays now and it's like, they talk about jam. John Guare was and remains extraordinarily generous to me and talks to me a lot about writing. And he said that Moss Hart told him, I think it was Moss Hart, that an audience will give you 15 minutes. And John Guare said this was really something that he takes to heart. For the first 15 minutes, an audience will sit there and give you a great deal of latitude. Like, what's this about? What's this going? But after that first 15 minutes, you lose them or you have them. I find that you know, whether you seduce them with a premise or language or both, a lot of plays don't do that. They don't even make that pact. There's not even that consummation with an audience. In Tennessee, always there was some form of consummation. It may not have been the best theatrical literary sex you ever had, but there was an attempt and there was foreplay and there was passion. So I think that's why there's probably been a reevaluation. Plus it's Tennessee Williams. I hate that he didn't live long enough as Edward Albee has and Arthur Miller did to have a, a great resurgence and lots and lots of revivals done where he could see them and see them winning awards and see people reinterpreting his parts. Albee wound up doing Seascape and other, other works as yeah. well. Yeah. You know. How has that kind of advice affected you in terms of even writing like your season of One Life to Live? Oh, that was a nightmare. Well, I, <laughs> I wrote One Life to Live under a pseudonym. It was the name of my cat. I wrote for One Life to Live under the name Segan Lane. I've also written for some TV shows as Algonquin Camembert. At one time, someone narked me out and said that I sometimes wrote as Segan Lane. But One Life to Live is still on my IMDb account. But there are other shows on my IMDb account I didn't write for. I don't know how I got on there. But I think the soap opera work, as, as uh, blazingly stupid as it was, it did teach me a lot. You don't have much time. And I think... That would be a great lesson for anybody wanting to be a writer for the theater or for film because you had so little time to do so many things. And you always had to end right before a commercial break with someone saying, and I know you're gay or and the baby's not yours. And then it went to a commercial. You had to build up to this. And how do you get there? The building blocks of getting there. That So that was valuable. The hours were tough. I will say that. But the advice that I've gotten from playwrights has helped me when someone calls me when I'm right at the edge of penury yet again, and they say, come in and work on this TV script. We need it to be fixed. And it's really repair work. And you're working in a really tight space and you have to be very diplomatic. You can't add or delete a character. All you're doing is basically spiffing up the dialogue. That's great fun because you have absolutely no time. It's really like pushing you on a stage and going, sing. 
And you're like, okay. And you just, you just do it. Politics and social issues did not play much of a role in Tennessee Williams' work. It was all emotional life. Did he talk politics at all? I think he was just bewildered that it, certain things were an issue at all. Like, I'm for gay liberation, I'm for black power, I'm for this. I'm for... The only political issue about which he spoke strongly and at length was he wanted a country that made him pay more taxes if it gave people free education, access to the arts, free health care, decent streets, streetlights that worked, you know, and a beautiful city, like clean it up, paint this place, you know. I, I mean, he would say like, I'm, you know, I live in New York and I pay enormous taxes and, the, and it's a pigsty. Where are my taxes going? You know, and I keep hearing about people being evicted and people not being able to get into a hospital. So where are my taxes going? He didn't understand. Of course, he didn't live long enough to see Reagan, Bush, Bush, where taxes were the ultimate evil. He said, if I got these things, and I think if most Americans got these things, they would not bitch so much about taxes because they would have streets that worked, schools that worked, healthcare, education, and maybe a $20 ticket to see a good play. When I went to your blog, I uh, saw a mention of something called Come Up a Man, The Hungers of Marlon Brando. What's yes. that? Well, Barbara Baxley was one of the first actresses who was really helpful to me. And Tennessee loved her. And of course, her role in The Follies of God is primarily her not terribly successful heterosexual love affair with William Hinge. But she'd call her friend Marlon Brando and say, you got to talk to this kid. And he'd go, I don't want to talk to him. And so she'd come to me and say, I'm sorry, I tried. And I go, well, you know, what are you going to do? Well, I then went over to Barbara Baxley's apartment one day and she was dead. And I had to call her friends. She was very close friends with Dave and Oli Brubeck. We put together a memorial service for her. And out of guilt, one night at about two o'clock, my phone rang and it was Marlon Brando. And that first phone call was about four hours. And he kept calling for about two years from, oh, I guess late June of 1990 until about November of 1992. Because I know the last conversation we had was about uh, the election of Bill Clinton as president. And I wrote everything down, typed it up, sent it to him on Mulholland Drive. And I never knew what I was going to do with it, make a character in a play based on this. I have sent it out to a few editors, a couple of whom are very interested, a few others who are just like, I don't know what this is, what this book is. It's not a book that can easily have a proposal written about it because it's not like chapter one, Marlon Brando talks about bisexuality. Chapter two, Marlon Brando talks about ice cream. I need you to have lunch with somebody and say, imagine a fat man in a muumu walking around in his house on Mulholland Drive talking to, at that point, I guess I was 28, 28-year-old kid who's a copy editor at Penthouse. And this is what they talked about. And again, he just felt I was like a therapist to him or something. There's a new movie about Brando. That Fascinating movie. And it's like, and a lot of those tapes sound like the conversations we had. The first conversation we, not the first, one of the first conversations, he said, it's 1041 here in Los Angeles. Could you talk to me until it's midnight in Los Angeles? And I went, yeah. He says, there's a cake in the kitchen I don't want to eat. And I think if you talk to me until midnight, I will have strength over the cake. Well, we talked to like three. And then when I spoke to the next time, I said, how did it go? He went, I ate the fucking cake. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I mean, I mean, it, it, uh, and there's a lot of that in the movie where he says like, it's okay to eat a brownie. You don't have to eat all the brownies. I mean, so here's this genius 
this man who's reading so many books and talking about acting and and he's terrified of the refrigerator. He's terrified of the baked goods. And it was such a long, slow self-destruction. And it's also very sad because he found joy in the acting. He said, but it's the business that will kill you. If they just let me get up there and act, but then I got to go talk to this one and I got to go talk to that. He was really an avoidant, I think, in a very public sphere. It felt to me as if something like Don Juan DeMarco, he did a couple of films after that. That and maybe Dry White Season were the only times in his later career that he actually acted. I liked him in The Freshman. I thought he was very funny. But A Dry White Season, he is quite good. But you know, it's like what we were talking about Tennessee. You go see one of his quote-unquote lesser plays, and it's there's something in there. And it's the same when you see Marlon Brando in Dr. Moreau. <laughs> yeah. Or the, what was it called? The Source or something. And you go, it's still there. Even in that horrible movie, The Formula, he made with George C. Scott. And he's wearing a, an earpiece where his lines are being fed to him. The way he plays with objects on a desk and looks up at George C. Scott, it's like, my God, he is upstaging an actor and he doesn't know his lines. And it's Marlon Brando. I know we, we preload that because it's Marlon Brando. I don't know. I, I, I still love watching him. There are very few actresses these days, I think, that are the equal of a Kim Stanley. I mean, Lois Smith, I'll watch her in anything. Oh, yeah. I, I saw her in The Americans, and she was brilliant. I know. And I and I saw her for the second time in the Annie Baker play, John. She goes right into a play called Marjorie Prime, which she did in Los Angeles, and which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. I was in Chicago in early June. She was doing a play at Steppenwolf. I saw her in it, and she came and spoke at an event for me because she is one of the last living follies of God and is so supportive. She shows up for me and says, yes, this guy has been doing this for 26 years. And she had also helped me get in touch with certain people. So you know, I would see her in anything for her brilliance and for the friendship that we have. It seems that one of the few actresses who could if she were in a different generation, and actually she played in Tennessee Williams, who might be able to compete with those people with Jessica Lange. Yeah, I do. I think Jessica Lange. I think Tennessee would be completely gobsmacked by someone like Kathy Bates. I think when she's in the right vehicle, Jennifer Jason Lee, she'd be wonderful in a Tennessee Williams. But Jessica Lange, absolutely. And Tennessee met her. So I think it's great that she has become a late stage Tennessee Williams woman. I was told this story and never knew if it was true. It was finally confirmed by a man named Glenn Jordan, a wonderful director. Jessica Lange was involved with Bob Fosse, and they went to Key West. And they were in the parking lot of a restaurant or bar and looked up, and there was Tennessee Williams in that damned raccoon coat that he was wearing when I met him. And on either side of him, almost holding him up, were two young, beautiful boys in cutoffs. I mean, just trade. And he, and Jessica Lang said, Bob, I don't do this. I've never asked you like, to introduce me to someone. I have to meet Tennessee. Do you know him? Oh, sure. Yeah. So they waited until Tennessee got closer. He was quite glazed and happy. And Bob Fawcett said, Tennessee. And Tennessee went, well, hey, Bobby, how you doing? And Bob Fawcett said, Tennessee, I would like you to meet a young actress who would like very much to speak to you, Jessica Lang. And Tennessee said, hello, Miss Lang. I'm Tennessee Williams. And these, pointing to the young boys, are the dregs. <laughs> 
And I just thought, you know, again, there's that Tennessee wit. Um, but yes, I, lo- I think Jessica Lang is phenomenal. She's doing Long Day's Journey tonight. I will see that play again, although I'm getting tired of it. Uh, I think there should be a moratorium on like 25 years between revivals, but I will see it because of her. And I can see, especially in the first season of American Horror Story, that she was really doing an homage to a Tennessee Williams character. James Grissom, unless you happen to be in the right place at the right time, you're not going to see a good production of Tennessee Williams. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which of the films would you recommend people to see if they wanted to see the best that they could see of Tennessee Williams if they can't get to, to a stage and see a good production of Glass Menagerie. Streetcar. Streetcar. Always streetcar. And it was his favorite. The talent in that. I mean, it, everything just works. The design, the direction, the music. It's really perfect. I love Baby Doll. I enjoy them all for various reasons. I also am very fond of Night of the Iguana, which a lot of people don't share that enthusiasm. But I think if I had to say... Pick two, it would be Streetcar, number one, Baby Doll, number two. Have you written plays? I have written a play. I wrote it. I showed it to several people, including Mike Nichols, who said, this is brilliant, but it's too mean. And I just, is that praise or what? He goes, this was in 2002. He says, I think you'll have a hard time getting it produced. I'm not saying you won't get it produced, but it's a mean play. And of course, it's about our culture and our lack thereof, I have since updated it to include the emasculating social media grip in which we all live, and we'll see what happens. Why was Camino Real never a film when all the others were? Well, it was done for public television by Glenn Jordan, I believe. You can get it through Netflix. It's Lottie Lenya, Carrie Nye, Martin Sheen. It's not bad. I think because it was a flop, and people don't go near flops generally. And I think also Tennessee didn't want to talk about it because it was painful to him. He had a flop while his rival and former lover, William Inge, was having a string of hits. So it was one of those things he just didn't talk about. So I don't think he pursued it. And then once it was done for television, no one would go near it as a film. Have you sent the book off to Lois Smith? I'm trying to remember who exactly is still alive. From Francis Sternhagen. Yeah, is still alive. Um, Yeah. I think I sent it to everyone still living, not only who are featured in the book, but who helped in the creation of the book. And Marion, sadly, did not live to see the publication of the book, but had the pages of this book next to her all the time and read it, I think, like Science and Health, like a Christian scientist reads Science and Health. I think she read Follies of God every day. Bringing up that, I mean, I notice there's a lot of mention. A number of these actresses were involved with Christian yes. science. Georgia Engel was involved with Christian science, and you worked in the Christian science reading room? I did not with Georgia Engel, sadly. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I just saw Georgia Engel. Uh, she's a brilliant actress, which I don't think most people realize. I saw her in Annie Baker's John. Annie Baker's play, John. Yes, I did. I had a job, which I should not have had that job because I'm not a licensed practitioner, and you really should be to work in a Christians, but I'm so charming um, that I got that job. Yes, I studied Christian science. I still am about 28% Christian scientist. Tennessee tried. Catherine Hepburn was partially Christian science. Uh, Mildred Natwick. A lot of actresses that I interviewed were. A lot of science is in the book. Tennessee tried it, but of course, the, the, uh, the dictum of not drinking was never going to fly uh, or smoking. But he liked the idea of you got a bad review, deny it. 
you know, it does not exist. God didn't create it. God didn't sanction it. Yes, but I did. I worked in a Christian science reading room, but I have sadly never been involved in Christian science with Georgia Engel. But I'm, you know, not, none of us is dead yet. <laughs> so. One final question, James Grissom. If you could go back and come up with your favorite Tennessee Williams line that he said to you that is not in the book, what would it be? Oh, God. Gosh, uh, there's so many because there were some he said that were distinctly for me, like versions of buck up, you know, and like why I shouldn't be worried. But I think if I had to pick a favorite, it would be I have a tendency to be dark and very Cassandra-like and say, oh, it's all coming to an end and um, the theater's dead and no one cares about books anymore and what are we going to do? Woe is me. You know, get the get the shelter full of food and get a rifle and let's go hide. And Tennessee, who was quite hysterical himself and histrionic, when he'd hear it from other people, he would become the voice of reason and optimism. And I remember he said to me one time, he said, oh, baby, you can't do that. No, come on. There's always going to be a need for a story. And words are magical. Keep throwing them up in the air. Keep throwing up. and Just know what magic will come. And I think I think everyone should wake up in the morning and remember that. Just go out, throw some words up in the air. They, they should be the right words. I mean, we don't want to be Donald Trump. But words of magic implies creativity and love and passion. So I think that's my favorite. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>